Chafchet Sivan, Tafshinayin Chet, coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. A revolution of joy, or the joy revolution. Welcome one and all, welcome into yet another live edition of uh, The Israel Show. My name is Mayor Weingarten, you're tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network. We're here each and every Monday, immediately following Jam in the AM. 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Israel Time, around the world, wherever you are right now listening that time that it is there, that's the time we're on. Only way to figure that one out. We are, of course, available 
on demand, which is so cool. You can just listen to the show whenever you want. You can download it into your device when you're in a Wi-Fi area, so it doesn't cost you on your data plan if you have a limited one. And then, uh, and then listen to it whenever you want. Right from the Nachum Siegel Network app, the beloved app that's available for free. Just go, yeah, do it now, do it now. If you don't have the Nachum Siegel Network app, do it now. Now, I don't know how you're listening to us. Maybe you're listening online at NachumSiegel.com and you don't have the app. So get the app. Just go online. Go to the Play Store. Go to the App Store, the Play Store, whatever uh, I Android calls their thing. And, um, and download Nachum Siegel Network, NSN app. You will not regret it. You will thank me. It's the gift that kids on giving, and it's for free. How how could you not do that? We have a bunch of interesting stories. We have so much to tell you about. There's so much news out of Israel that a five-hour show would not be enough, let alone a one-hour show, but we're going to do our best, and we're even going to stick in some music to liven things up. Here is uh, Kululam, 12,000 people. Was this the 12,000 one? No, this was not the 12,001. This was less. I don't know. A few thousand. Uh, they did a whole bunch at the same time. And this is the classic Hallelujah, the one that, that uh, was victorious during the Eurovision back in the um, late 70s. And um, in Yerushalayim, of course, brings up the memories of the Eurovision and questions what will happen next year. Will the Eurovision come back to Jerusalem or will the European... Countries and the enemies of Israel find some excuse not to have it in our capital. We shall wait and see. In the meantime, just enjoy this beautiful rendition of the classic Israeli song. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
the amazing Kululam version of Hallelujah. And, uh, of course, this was recorded in honor of Israel's 70th birthday. And um, a stanza, a paragraph, if you will, was added by the writer, the original writer of the song, the lyricist. And um, that paragraph um, conveyed the joy and the excitement of the 70th anniversary of Israel. That was done by several thousand people who got together to do the music rendition, as we have, um, I think we were one of the first to discuss this great project called Kululam, which is taken off like wildfire in Israel. I'm Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Last week, there were screaming headlines about a story that has to do with uh, the United States and the Iran deal, the deal that President Obama passed and that President Trump has, uh, I guess, voided, you would say, or withdrawal from. The reason he was able to do that, President Trump, is because this deal was never ratified as a treaty by the Congress, which is um, this balance of powers that we have in the United States where the president can make a deal, but if it's going to be a real treaty, a lasting treaty between two countries, it has to be passed by the Congress. And President Obama knew that he didn't have the support. It was such a controversial uh, deal, which uh, so many felt would uh, harm Israel and the world in general by allowing, ultimately, Iran to get a nuclear bomb. He knew he didn't have the votes in Congress, so he just passed it as an as a sort of an executive order, which basically meant that as long as he was in office, it was fine. It was a deal between President Obama and Iran, with other European countries also involved, of course. Um, it's hard for me to imagine. There are so many uh, new revelations about this deal and how bad it was. And how much we were lied to. It's hard for me to imagine what anybody was thinking. So this came out last week, just last week. And this is um, from Mark Thiessen. I'm reading parts of uh, an article by Mark Thiessen. He's a, Thiessen, he's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a former chief speechwriter. I don't know why they say former. He served, and that's, uh, this, this makes more sense, he served as chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush, and he is a Fox News commentator as well. When it comes to uh, the Iran nuclear deal, he writes, the Obama administration increasingly appears to have a bottomless pit of deception. So let's see what we have here. First, President Obama failed to disclose to Congress the fact that there was secret side deals on the matter of inspections, right? We were told we could go in and inspect whatever we want, whatever we want. That's what's so great about this deal. Oh, oh, oh. It was later discovered by chance during uh, a meeting with the uh, IAEA and some members of Congress They found out by chance that there was a secret side deal that nobody knew about in the United States. So America was entering into an agreement with Iran about nuclear bombs, ultimately about the destruction of Israel, and there were side deals that were secret that were kept not only from the American public, but from the Congress. Then we learned, and we've spoken about this over the years, then we learned that the Obama administration secretly sent a plane to Tehran. Do you know what was in there? It was a cargo plane. You probably know by now what it was loaded with, this cargo plane. 
hundred million dollars in cash, Swiss francs, euros. America's not allowed to bring dollars in that way. So they converted, the Obama administration did, the money into other currencies, almost like a money laundering scheme headed by the president. It's amazing. And shipped it in a plane on pallets to Tehran. So now the Iranians, who are the biggest supporters of terrorism in the region, or in the world possibly, the supporters of Hezbollah and Hamas, the troublemakers in chief, big time, they were given cash by the Obama administration, untraceable now, so they can go and give it to terrorist organizations. The United States is so busy passing laws, banking laws, to help the United States security forces to follow the money, to figure out where terrorist money is coming from. And then, on the other hand, the United States is just handing the chief terrorist a plane load of cash, $400 million. But wait, but wait, but wait. There were more secret flights filled with cash. A total, besides the $400 million, a total of $1.3 billion in cash. So these are the past lies that ultimately came out. Now, this bombshell. It's been revealed in a new report, that the Obama administration secretly tried to help Iran use United States banks to convert $5.7 billion in Iranian assets, meaning Iran has assets in the United States, large, large assets. But, But the Obama administration promised the Congress and the American people that Iran will be denied access to the U.S. financial and commerce markets. Now, here's a quote from Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, who testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Okay? This is, this is a, a, an Orthodox Jew. This is a member of the, of the board of the, of the OU. At least he was. I think he still is. Of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations. He... he Maybe he didn't know what was going on, in fact, behind everybody's back. But he got up and he said, Iranian banks will not be able to clear U.S. dollars through New York or hold correspondent account relationships with U.S. financial institutions or enter into financial arrangements with U.S. banks. And the testimony was given a second time by one of the deputies of Jack Lew, Secretary of Treasury. But now, after investigating, it comes out that on February the 24th, 2016, the Obama Treasury Department granted a license that authorized conversion of Iranian assets worth billions of U.S. dollars using the U.S. financial system. You understand? They sent the Secretary of the Treasury to testify before Congress and get everybody calm. Don't worry. This deal with Iran will still block them from using the banking system to get more money. They were desperate for money. Iran got came into the deal in the first place only because the sanctions, the financial economic sanctions on them were so great that their country was falling apart and they had no choice. Little would they know that they were dealing with John Kerry and Obama and President Obama who were like, I don't know, like patsies. Not only did they get everything they wanted, they got everything they wanted plus. Now, did these billions of dollars get laundered through or, or transferred through the U.S. banking system? No. Ultimately, even though the Obama administration worked behind the scenes, 
to contravene its own promise, it was the banks themselves that said we're not ready to do this because it goes against the Iran deal. And if not for that, if not for the banks being worried that they would get into trouble, Iran would have gotten more billions of dollars to help fund their tyrannical regime and terrorism around the Middle East. Here's the wrap-up according to Mark Thiessen. I I like it because he summarizes it in, in like seven points. Here's what the Obama administration did. Everybody who who thinks the Obama administration was great, everybody who's pining for the days when we had a respectable president who knew how to get up and represent us, who didn't lie, well, folks, he was very respectable and he looked great and he spoke great, but he lied through his teeth And he created a Middle East that is in such bad situation, bad shape, in in tatters. That we will be eating this horrible stew that he has created for a long time. So here's the sum up. One, the Obama administration told Congress that it would not allow Iran access to the U.S. financial institutions. Two, issued a special license allowing Iran to do exactly that. Three, pressured U.S. banks to help Iran, but it was unsuccessful because the banks refused to go against the law. Four, lied to Congress and the American peoples about what it had done. And by the way, I'm adding here, this isn't just if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, which is very important to so many people. This is, this is even a bigger lie than that. Five, admitted in internal emails that these efforts exceeded U.S. obligations under the nuclear deal. I like that, exceeded in quotes. Meaning, they weren't allowed according to the deal. Six, sent officials, including bank regulators around the world, to urge foreign financial institutions to do business with Iran. Do you hear this? And seven, promised that they would get nothing more than a slap on the wrist for violating U.S. sanctions. So the United States that still has certain sanctions on Iran, in order to avoid their getting more um, untraceable money and propping up their economy, in order to avoid that, the United States has certain sanctions on the books. They send the Secretary of State John Kerry and his people around the world to tell the governments, don't listen to what our law says violate our law, and we will make sure through our control of the Justice Department that all you'll get is a slap on the wrist. It's, it's you know, here's his wrap-up line. We hear a lot these days from the media about the danger of presidential lies. Well, when it comes to the Iran deal, the Obama administration took lying to new heights. And no, that is not fake news folks if you're still pining for those days maybe it's time to uh, to hang it up Maureen Nehedar interesting name Maureen Nehedar is a uh, singer in Israel she came out with a new song it's the classic words, Altira of the Yaakov, which appear in our Motzei Shabbat liturgy. I found this to be a very interesting take. Just came out this week. I want to share it with you. So here we go. Altira of the Yaakov, Maureen Nehedar. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Now that is gorgeous. Maureen Nehedar. Brand new. Altira Avdi Yaakov. Words from our Motzei Shabbat liturgy. Debuting it here for you on the Israel Show. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network. Our good friend listener Moshe Eisenberg. I was hoping that he would comment on uh, the discussion that we just had. And here's what he says. The reason the U.S. and he he's an expert on this issue. Uh, the reason the U.S. Constitution requires Senate approval of real treaties is to ensure that no one person, even the president, could make important deals on their own. Lesser deals are okay. The Iran deal required a ratification by the Senate as part of the checks and balance system, and he writes. Moshe does, I think the deal with Iran could have been challenged in court as requiring such ratification. Very interesting. It's interesting why why nobody tried that um, to challenge it in court. I don't know. Maybe it would have taken so long that uh, the 10 years would be up by then. Um, I want to point out, well, I'm going to point out. How's that? If I want to, just do it. Um, June the 10th, Yesterday, 1982, 36 years ago, and in the Jewish calendar, it was Yutet Sivan, which was Shabbat, 36 years ago, was the battle of Sultan Yaakov, was um, a battle where Israeli tank forces were given incorrect information and sent by mistake, to an area where they were met by a Syrian ambush. And um, unfortunately, there were a lot of losses of life. And since then, three soldiers have been missing. Nobody knows where they are, whether they are alive or dead, although it is presumed that they are no longer alive. Yehuda Katz, Zachary Baumel, and Svi Feldman are the three Israeli missing in action, Hezder Yeshiva boys, and the tank corps in the First Lebanon War, who 36 years ago today disappeared. It's an open wound for Jews everywhere. And I thought it was appropriate to mention it as we are right on that anniversary. Um, So we'll start this uh, big story that we were telling you about last, last week. You know, I think everybody agrees that one of the trademarks, one of the hallmarks of a democracy is that the elected civilians make war decisions and those are carried out by the military. So when security forces, the military, act on their own or act against the government... It's called a coup, a coup d'etat, putsch. In some cases, it would be called a revolution, right? When the military basically takes over the government. Well, although that didn't happen, twice in recent Israeli history, Israel's security forces refused to carry out, they refused to accept orders of the prime minister and the defense minister And in a way, it's a a type of revolution, if you will, or a type of coup. Obviously, they didn't take over the government and so forth. But in theory, the concept that the elected government, democratically elected government, is overruled by the military is, uh, is a difficult one to accept. So... We have spoken briefly about the first time that this happened. Mayor Dagan is the head of the Mossad at the time. There is no question 
in the world. No one can possibly even blink an eye at, 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 and doubt for a second that Mayor Dagan was one of the most capable, brilliant heads of the Mossad. He also had somewhat of an ego, which I guess in that position you have. And in more than one case, in order to thwart certain things that he felt in Israel were going to happen, that the government was going to carry out, he took it upon himself to undermine those activities. It's, it's pretty crazy, right? So, for example, it is said that when he was given the order, when, when I shouldn't say it that way, when the order was given that the army get ready, that the Air Force, the army get ready to carry out an attack, an air attack on the nuclear reactors in Iran, similar to the ones in Iraq that Menachem Begin carried out, Mayor Dagan and, and the, the chief of Mossad and then the chief of the staff of the Israeli army at the time, Gabi Ashkenazi, both felt that that would be a terrible thing. And in effect, and this was what they hung their hat on, it would be a declaration of war and, according to the Gemara reasoning, a declaration of war can't be made by the prime minister himself. It has to be made by the government. And being that attacking the nuclear reactor would be tantamount to a declaration of war it would it's an illegal um it's it's an illegal uh, um order that they were given and therefore they didn't have to carry it out and they would even thwart it and what happens is mayor dagan comes to the united states tips off people here in the in the obama administration the obama administration makes it very clear to benjamin netanyahu that if he carries out this attack, the United States will shoot down the Israeli planes in the air. Can you imagine? Okay, so that happened once. Then, after Mayor Dagan concluded his tenure as the head of the Mossad, the next person to come into that spot was Tamir Pardo. And recently, about a week and a half ago, Tamir Pardo gave a a lengthy, well, it was broadcast about a week and a half ago, it was a lengthy interview that took place over many months for the the Israeli uh, news magazine called Uvda with Ilana Dayan. And... Tamir Pardo there said so many things that probably should not have been said. I mean, so many other members of the Mossad, including ex-Mossad heads, say that it was just very foolish to reveal some of the things that he revealed. Anyway, he there says, well, the big headline was he accuses Prime Minister Netanyahu of ordering a wiretap on him and on the chief of staff, meaning... He ordered the Shin Bet, the security forces, to wiretap the head of the Mossad and the head of the army in order to make sure that they're not leaking information. That was the headline. But there was a lot more involved. So I'd like to start off the first clip, to play the first clip. This is going back a while uh, when Carolyn Glick, the amazing journalist and author, was on stage here in New York in the Jerusalem Post Forum together with Mayor Dagan and Gabi Ashkenazi, of course, after they had finished their, uh, their roles as head of Mossad and, and chief of staff. And she accused them of uh, creating the situation that we're in now, the fact that we have this situation with Iran because they refused to listen. And you can hear Mayor Dagan in his heavy, the heavy voice um, in English that um, interrupts her is Mayor Dagan himself saying that the reason was that it was an illegal um, illegal command that the Prime Minister gave. So here's, here's that uh, exchange. In 2010, according to a report that came out on the evening of, on the eve of America's presidential elections in 2012 in Uvda, the Israeli investigative report, we learned that two of the gentlemen on this panel with us 
right? We're given an order to prepare the military for an imminent strike against Iran's nuclear installations. And they refused. And if Because we, it was an illegal order. What? It was an illegal was, order. You were the director of Mossad. You, not, you, were, you were ordered not there. by the security you cabinet to prepare. You don't know what, what happened there? This is certainly and a the government, interpretation. The prime minister, without not, the authority of the government. Had you not brought in your expert legal opinion to determine whether or not the prime minister of Israel and the defense minister of Israel have a right to order Israel to take action in its national defense, then we would not be where we are today. We would not be in a position where we are now faced with a situation where no international coalition will be built, where now we are seeing the United States moving forward towards the end of the month to conclude a nuclear agreement with Tehran that will enable them to acquire the bomb. We would be in a different position. They changed their mind about enriched uranium two years ago, not five years ago. We would be in a different position. And I think it is important to understand what we're dealing with here. Thank you. So that's Carolyn Glick um, talking about this um, situation with Mayor Dagan. And now we go... Now we go to Tamir Pardo, Dagan's next, his successor, I should say. And here from the Uvda uh, magazine, Israeli news magazine show of about 10 days ago, they're, they're saying that Israel, the Israeli government, Netanyahu actually, gave the, what they called the P+, plus, the, the, like the D-Day of 15, 15 days, they were giving a 15-day period of time in order to get the Israeli Air Force ready to attack uh, Iran. Rosh HaMossad HaChadash, Tamir Pardo, Ve'aramatkal HaChadash, Benny Gantz, Mekablim Bemalach 2011, Hanchaya, Shenechsefet Kan Larishona, Le'arech, Lifeula Be'Iran, Be'Pay, Plus 15, Klomar, Okay, so the Prime Minister gives him that order. And what would happen? Well, it happens again. It really happens again. The head of the Mossad says, I don't want to carry out that order. And he goes around looking for advisors to tell him that it would not be legal for him to carry out the order. It would be okay for him to to subvert what the prime the, the attack that the prime minister is trying to carry out on Iran. He goes to to consult with the legal counsel of the government and the legal counsel, of course, of the Mossad and former Mossad agents. All this is going on behind the back of the prime minister. Eventually, the prime minister finds out. I, I mean, I. I I have to imagine it's a form of insubordination. And he's not carrying out an order specifically given to him by the Prime Minister, and instead he's, he's, he's going around asking other people's opinion. Ultimately, the mission did not happen. We'll hear about that in a minute. But here's Pardo explaining how he went around looking, uh, uh, asking advice from uh, all the different people because he didn't want to carry out this, uh, this order. מאחורי הקלעים מתחוללת באותם ימים דרמה שלא נחשפה עד עכשיו. פרדו חושש שכל דריכה של המערכת עלולה לחולל הסלמה מסוכנת, והוא מחליט בצעד חריג לפנות לשורה של גורמים, גם ליועץ המשפטי לממשלה, כדי לבדוק אם ראש הממשלה מוסמך לתת הנחיה שעלולה לדרדר את ישראל למלחמה. עשיתי ברורים מכל מה שיכולתי לעשות בתור ראש מוסד שרק נכנס לתפקידו. בדקתי עם ראשי מוסד קודמים ובדקתי עם יועצים משפטיים. של המוסד? בכלל. גם של הממשלה. והתייעצתי עם כל מי שיכולתי להתייעד בשביל להבין מי המוסמך לתת הנחיות בכל נושא של פתיחה ומלחמה. And notice that what he's saying is that he took advice because as far as he's concerned, the same thing that Mayor Dagan said, this would be a declaration of war. And declaration of war can't be given by the Prime Minister alone. It has to be given by either the cabinet or the security cabinet or the, or the, the full government. 
And, and so he goes through that same kind of logic. And ultimately, the mission doesn't happen. But why? And would we be in a better or worse situation? Here is uh, the conclusion of that. So Ilana Dayan asks him, do you see, did you understand the Prime Minister's command to bomb Iraq to be tantamount to the opening of a war, to the declaration of war? And he says, yes, 100%, chad v'chalak. And then she says, Ultimately, this was stopped in part because of the objections of the head of the Mossad. The, the funny part of this story, ironic, I shouldn't say funny, the ironic part of the story is that in another part of the interview, Pardo talks about the fact that the Prime Minister ordered wiretaps on him and on the Chief of Staff. And he says, what kind of democracy is it? where such a thing happens. And the question, of course, is what kind of democracy is it where the appointed head of the security force goes against and scuttles the specific command, the specific order of the elected prime minister of the democracy. The story of the wiretapping turns out in in the in the context not to be anywhere near as bad as they presented it. There was a very secret mission happening at that time. Maybe it was what ultimately brought all those documents from the Iran archive. Who knows what it was? But there were hundreds of people involved, and there was a great, great concern that some body within the hundreds and hundreds of people at all levels who were dealing with this mission, this secret mission, somebody might leak. And so the Prime Minister told the head of the Shin Bet, use all your resources, including wiretapping, on everybody in order to make sure that there are no leaks. In, that included the head of the Mossad and the Chief of Staff. They made it out as Netanyahu ordered that they wiretapped the head of the Mossad and the chief of staff, meaning specifically them, because he wanted to know what they were doing and what they were plotting against him. No, Netanyahu, in order to tighten up the security and to avoid having any leaks about such a sensitive operation that could have been totally messed up and people could have died if there would have been a leak, he tells the Shin Bet, listen... Use all that you need, all at your, all the tools that you have at your disposal. Use them all, including wiretapping, to make sure that there are no leaks, to make sure that our security is not breached. And yes, that included people like the Ramadkal, the chief of staff, and the head of the Mossad. Going to end off with a question. I... I, I and, and I really don't know the answer to this. Mayor Dagan and Tamir Pardo are great Israeli heroes. I mean, if you're the head of the Mossad, you understand that you spent almost all your life until that point working for the security of Israel, doing great things. You believe in Israel. You're ready to put your life on the line for Israel. What would lead somebody like that to do this? So one would have to say that Mayor Dagan, Pardo, Gabi Ashkenazi, the Chief of Staff, and all the other heads of the security forces of Israel truly believed that it would be a disastrous thing for the state of Israel to do. And it would create a much worse situation security-wise for the state of Israel, maybe cost many lives.
So we're left with the conundrum of did Benjamin Netanyahu and Ehud Barak, a former chief of staff himself and a former uh, secretary of defense, when they gave the orders to start getting ready, were they hallucinating? Were they so misguided that all the other heads of security, the non-elected heads of security, were ready to do crazy things like go to the United States and, and, and snitch in order to thwart their efforts? Or were the heads of security somehow motivated by something that I obviously can't imagine and go against the orders of the Prime Minister and Defense Minister? I, I, it troubles me. I really, I really don't know. I mean, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of ego, obviously. But maybe I'm naive, and uh, I, I would love to think that um, it doesn't... Uh, it, <laughs> That it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen because of egos or politics or whatever. And the life of the state of Israel, I mean, we're talking about an existential threat on the state of Israel. That wouldn't happen just as a result of, uh, of some internal posturing, egos, I don't know what politics anyway that's uh, those are two big stories that we bore you today one is the um, revelation last week about how much the Obama administration lied about the Iran deal how much the Obama administration hid from not only the American people but from the Congress and how much how desperate they were to even contravene American law to help Iran get money. That's shocking. And there's no there's no outrage. It was a headline for a day. It's typical of the media in the left here. It was a headline for a day, and then it went away. There's no continuing outrage. You know, when, when President Trump says something outrageous, very often, the media harp on it forever and ever. It doesn't go away. This comes up for a day, and then it goes away, because they want to like President Obama, because they want to like the Democrats. So they report it, because they can't not report it, it's news, but then it goes away. Uh, Okay, so here's what we're going to do, because time is running out, as always. Those of you who um, are familiar with Israeli music know that the Six-Day War had a classic song that was sort of part of the war itself, and that was Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. And that the Yom Kippur War had a very sad or bittersweet song that was associated with it, interestingly written by the same author, Naomi Shemer, called Lu Yihi. The words of Lu Yehi are, are bittersweet. It talks about the, the difficult, difficult devastation that Israel was feeling at the time and hopes that things would, would get better. Let's see if um, we, should, we have the words here somewhere. Yeah. Ojesh Mifras Lavan Ba'ofek. There is a sail of a boat, a white sail up in the horizon. Mul... Anan Shachor Kavet. So on one hand you see a sail, a white sail. On the other hand you see a dark cloud. Kol Lu Let it be whatever we request from God. This is a tefillah, basically. Yet another Naomi Shemer modern prayer. Ve'im b'chalanot ha'erev or neirot hechag ro'ed kol lu In the window as the night falls, we see the candles of the holiday. Don't forget, Yom Kippur War started on Yom Kippur, continued into Sukkot. The candles of the holiday were lit, but they were shuddering. 
The second stanza is fascinating. The Mivaser is somebody who gives you gives you news. Somebody comes with information. But in this context it means those people who come to the door of the family to advise them that they've lost a loved one in the war. So she says, If that person heralding the information, heralding news, is standing in our door, door, doorstep, May he come with good news. And so the song goes on. The sad... And, and a little bit of the the more optimistic. She wrote the song, as we said, around uh, during the time of the Yom Kippur War. But she wrote it to a melody of a very popular song at the time, which was the Beatles' Let It Be. And when her husband heard that, he said... These words are too beautiful and they speak too much to the Israeli psyche at this point. You can't use the Lennon-McCartney song. You've got to compose your own. And she went home and almost immediately composed what became an amazing classic. I never knew that. I I knew, of course, that Lu Yihi... And she had herself said it was an influence of Let It Be, even though it wasn't a translation because it's totally different words. I never knew that originally she wrote the words to that. So, as I read that article, I came across somebody who sang it that way, and I'm going to end off the show with it. I found it very, very fascinating. Really, it fits beautifully. Never thought of it. And um, I think you'll find it interesting, especially if you're familiar with the way we know the song originally. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your Facebook likes, comments. Thanks to the staff of the Nachum Siegel Network. My very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, Yoni Pollock and Seth Gordon with After Further Review, covering the latest in the world of sports. And then Novik Now with Jake Novik, focusing on big stories and offering analysis from this longtime TV news producer and editorial columnist, Jake Novak. And then... The Great Monday Music Marathon. Until next Monday, immediately following JM in the AM. I'm Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last. Oh no, they're just running in a different race. Mulanan shachor kaver, kol shenevakesh lu yehi. Ve'im machalonot ha'erev, onerot achag roet, kol shenevakesh lu yehi, lu yehi.
גגדום, כל שנבקש לו יהי. זה סוף הקיץ, סוף הדרך, תן להם לשוב הלום, כל שנבקש לו יהי. 